Welcome to Living Well into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series is about topics that are important to all of us. Food, housing, climate, health. We look forward to introducing you to our guests, men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s. Some are national, even international experts in their field. Some you may have never heard of. With a layering of diverse voices from different generations, we hope to increase understanding between the various generations, learn what their contributions and experiences were and are, the challenges and the victories, and how we can work together. This is the last of our four-part series on food. We've talked about where our food comes from, food as medicine, good food, food you enjoy, and food that is good for you. And today we're going to talk about food, health, and body weight. If you missed any of our previous episodes or want to listen to them again, you can find them on WTBR-FM, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play Living Well into the Future podcast. When we started working on this episode, the idea was to have members of different generations talk about their experiences with body weight issues. To hear firsthand what people's experiences were at school, college, work, with friends, parents, colleagues, how it affected their health and relationships and what needed to change so that they and we can all live well into the future. Of almost a dozen people contacted, absolutely no one would speak for the record. Several people told me about their lives, but even with the promise of anonymity, didn't want their voice heard. One young woman was afraid her mother would be insulted. A woman a little older was afraid her colleagues might recognize her voice and it would affect her job. That led us to ask why. So today we're going to speak with Dr. Lisa Nelson, who in conjunction with her medical practice, runs a group called Healthy Eating, Healthy Living. She says, Science is just a screening tool. No, it's just a number. And even the Center for Disease Control says BMI can be used as a screening tool, but it's actually not diagnostic. She's been in practice for almost 20 years. Dr. Stephanie Belling, aged 85, who has spoken with us on healthy food in the past, and Dr. Hilary Seligman, now in her 40s, who has previously spoken with us about food insecurity, will also help answer the question. To them, we have added psychologist Diane Barth, who for the past 40 years has worked with people with body image issues. We hope their insights will help us understand the issues so we can work together for a better future for all. Our first guest is Dr. Lisa Nelson. She's a graduate of the University of Massachusetts School of Medicine and completed her residency and internship in family medicine at Boston Medical Center and South Boston Community Health Center. She's worked in private practice family medicine since 2005 and also serves on the faculty of the UMass Medical School and the University of New England College of Osteopathic Physicians. She is director of medical education at Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, and also serves as medical director of the Nutrition Center. Welcome, Dr. Nelson. Here in the Berkshires, primary care really is primary care. It's an underserved area, and so we're all just trying to do our best, but just proving how needed healthcare is, right? And not just health services, but some of the things that we're going to talk about today. The role of nutrition and lifestyle, and compassion and accuracy and data and understanding really what people need in their lives. The CHP, the Community Health Practice, is federally funded, but you treat people of all income levels, don't you? Exactly, yeah. It's wonderful. We really take all comers, and so there's a lovely diversity of incomes, backgrounds, people from different countries, a lot of recent People who have moved to the area, fled to the cities during the pandemic, or kids who came back home. It's really interesting mix of folk. You deal with all ages. Do you have a different approach to the older versus the younger patients? That is a very interesting question, and I want to say no, because there are different health screening guidelines. So of course, there's 
the shoulds for keeping people safe from a screening approach. But my goal as a provider is always to work with the human in front of me, whatever the age, and to find out what's important to them about their health and their background, what they think that I should know and what their goals are and how I can help them meet those goals. I don't think that changes over the course of the life. What, how we do that might change, what we talk about, but I think the approach is the same. In other words, you're looking at the individual yes. and what they need and then tailoring it to the individual, whatever the age is. Yeah, that's my hope. And one of the things that I've been so appreciative about with DHP is that's a process that can take a while. <laughs> it's hard to get time in medicine, which I'm sure every patient who's listening right now knows. And so we try to spend more than five minutes. We know that's not sufficient time. And CHP has been generous in mostly allowing me the time that I need to get to know people. Now, Dr. Nelson will shed light on whether your weight, whatever it is, is a health issue. I would say I love to talk with people about their weight and how they feel. I have an interesting take on whether or not obesity is a problem. I think that maybe we can talk about more. So maybe what I would say is I don't necessarily see obesity as a problem. I think it needs to be unpacked. I prefer to think about metabolic health rather than weight. And I've observed over the decades that there's a lot of misunderstandings and suffering and stigma and people often have a lot of questions and sometimes baggage and so one of my joys really and goals is to work with people to see if we can find a better approach to weight and health that involves less suffering because sometimes there's been a lot of suffering along the way especially people who have been classified as obese. First definitions then, is there a difference between someone who has an issue with overeating as opposed to obesity? Is there a difference between overeating and obesity? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And the way that I'm going to answer it is people can have trouble with eating or suffering around their relationship with food at any weight. So people who appear thin, right, there may be an intense amount of suffering there. Obsession or anxiety or work or harmful dieting. So that's one aspect to the question. So yeah, people who are smaller bodied may be suffering a lot and people who are larger bodied may not be suffering at all, either their emotional health or their physical health. So I like to uncouple that as much as possible. Setting aside the issue of whether people struggling with body image become unhealthily thin, let's talk for a moment about obesity. We hear that there's an obesity epidemic. Do you disagree with that, or is that the wrong way to look at it? The rates of obesity are increasing, so that's just a fact. Whether or not we want to call it an epidemic or a health crisis, this is where I like to get a little bit more specific. So if we could talk about what obesity actually means. Obesity is defined by BMI, and BMI is defined as weight divided by height squared. And so usually people know there's a calculator, you can do it online if you have a scale and you know how tall you are, and it often happens in the doctor's office because the first thing that happens to most people in most practices, even before they see their provider, is they're brought in and they're put on a scale. BMI is calculated. But what I feel that most people don't know and our health system doesn't really recognize is a BMI is just a screening tool. No, it's just a number. And even the Center for Disease Control says BMI can be used as a screening tool, but it's actually not diagnostic of the body fatness or the health of an individual. That's a, that's well, a direct that's, quote from their site. That's very surprising. They thought that was what it defined. Exactly, exactly. So I'm going to say that again. They, this is from their own website. At an individual level, BMI can be used as a screening tool, but is not diagnostic of the body, body fat or the health of an individual. And what I think is actually happening is exactly the opposite. The people come in, they get their BMI, they're being diagnosed by their the electronic health record as normal weight, overweight, or obese, and then we further make assumptions about what that diagnostic category means and leap to the conclusion that if they hit that obese category, 
it means that their health is at risk. So there are a lot of assumptions along that way that can end up with erroneous information. To reinforce Dr. Nelson's point, one young woman who wouldn't talk for the record told me that when she went into the doctor, they would weigh her, and then the doctor would address nothing but her weight and never treat the problem that she came in for. You lead a group called Healthy Eating, Healthy Living. How do you see that issue of what the expectation is given the definition of overweight or obesity in the practice of dealing with real people. Most people who come to either my group or find me in primary care who have been classified as obese believe or have been told, especially folks who are over 40, I'd say, either weight as a problem and so often come to me and say, how can you help me lose weight? And so one of the first things that I want to do is really question that. Is, is your health a problem? If so, tell me how. And let's think about your health, but instead of just using weight, because as we have already heard, right, BMI not the best screening, let's look at metabolic health. Let's look at biomarkers like blood pressure and where we put on our weight. Is it well distributed over the body or is it what we call central obesity? What's the blood sugar? And are people pre-diabetic? Do they have something called metabolic syndrome, which is a combination of all these risk factors? And what the data shows us is that people, even if they're obese, but they are in what we call good metabolic health, their risk of disease is not actually increased. What we hear so often in you know, obesity is tied to chronic health disease and um, early mortality, but if we pull out this subsection of what are termed metabolically healthy obese individuals, they're actually not at increased risk for chronic health conditions or early mortality. Oh, that must be life-changing. Do people believe you when you tell them <laughs> that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, sometimes there's a lot, sometimes there's immediate relief. And, and I would say that I'm hearing that a little bit more with younger folks because this information is starting to penetrate out there. But many of us who, again, are over 40, we've been hearing about the dangers of obesity or the dangers of dietary fat. We all grew up in that low-fat craze and where there, I feel, was really a larger cultural thing around fat phobia or fat shaming and it was all tied in together. And so sometimes my older folks need a little bit more convincing, but that's where it's nice that we have lab values. And there was actually an article that just came out in JAMA, which is one of the premier evidence-based peer-reviewed journals. And that's Journal of the American Medical Association. Yeah, yeah. So this came out in May of 2021 called Metabolically Healthy Obesity Redefined. And so really trying to educate clinicians if BMI is over 30, but there's lacking the central obesity pattern, which we could talk about more in a minute, but their blood pressure is well controlled off medication and there's no type 2 diabetes that actually don't have an increased risk of dying of heart disease or of any other conditions. And what's really notable is that they estimate that about 40% of individuals who are diagnosed or classified as obese have this metabolically healthy obese phenotype. So 40% of obese individuals. So I did a little math in preparation for our conversation today. No, because this is interesting. The 2020 census said that we had about 258 million adults, okay? The CDC and NIH websites say that 37% of adults are obese. So if we take 40% of that number, we come up with 38.9 million Americans who have this metabolically healthy obese profile who are being classified as at risk when maybe they're not. So that's a lot of people who have been told they need to lose weight when maybe they don't have to. So what is the first thing you do when you see someone come in with the profile that says that they are overweight? And does everybody of every economic level get the analysis that will allow them to live more comfortably in their body? Do you mean, does everybody get these biomarkers tested? Yeah. So those screenings are often by age, but if weight is a factor, insurance will cover some of the things we do or a cholesterol profile or a fasting lipid panel 
or a fasting blood sugar. Everybody at every age is getting their blood pressure, so we usually have the tools that we need to determine somebody's metabolic health. The question is, have we been looking? Have we been looking at it that way? So if somebody does say, I'm working with a 22-year-old, which is a little early, then we're gonna talk about family history because genes are a component. Those can contribute to risk of chronic disease, and I definitely fold that in. And then we talk about lifestyle, of course, and then we order labs because what I say is, let's do some data digging. Let's fact check first. So the federal insurance, the federally insured individuals are able to get that as well as people with private insurance. And yes, pretty much everybody, I believe. Yeah. And as part of what you're doing is educating the clinicians as well, educating the people in your practice to your point of view on overweight and obesity and things like that. Yeah, and the folks that I work with, I think, are really want to make sure that we're all providing appropriate care. And I think also my colleagues are really worried about stigma and being sensitive and really caring for people correctly. So they're very open to these discussions and have sent some of their folks to the group that I run because we're just trying to provide good care, whatever that looks like. Dr. Stephanie Belling, our next guest, has over 54 years of experience in the medical field. She graduated from New York Medical College Medical School in 1968 and was medical director of Canyon Ranch in the Berkshires for 20 years. She too emphasizes that it takes time to serve a patient's needs. I just, I, I wanna say again, emphasize the importance of knowing the whole individual. I had a patient who was, I would say elderly now, let's say a man of 70, who's about 15 years younger than I am. But at that time, he seemed elderly and he had diabetes and he was overweight. And I was working with him to get him to lose some weight so we could reduce the insulin. We could just make some changes, prevent circulatory disease and possibly amputation. It was serious. And I'd see him month after month and there'd been no weight loss. And he said to me one day, I, I just eat what's put in front of me. I don't cook. I don't plan it. I said, why don't we have your wife come with me to the next time? We'll see. Maybe we can get her to understand and try to make it a little bit easier for you. So she came. She was also a very overweight woman, and she had difficulty walking, very sedentary, and he, as he was, this very overweight couple. And she spoke to me privately, and she said, Doctor, you just have to understand something. I have nothing to offer this man now. We have no intimacy. We can't walk together. We can barely sit together. He loves food that I prepare for him. That's all I have to offer him, to make him happy, she said to me. I was in tears. And I realized I knew nothing about their life, about what they were going through, of what it meant. And by having the two of them together, I got them into a cooking class together where she could still make him delicious food, but by changing ingredients, all the things we talked about, they could be much better for him. And he began to lose weight. She began to lose weight. She came and said she could walk to her mailbox. And there were these they're little things, but they were so meaningful in their lives. Dr. Belling's story shows the benefit of treating the individual health stakes and the complexity of food issues at any age. This is Julie B. Adler. You're listening to Living Well into the Future. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Living Well Into the Future. This is Julie B. Adler. Before we speak with psychologist Diane Barth about what Lisa Nelson calls the struggles people with weight problems have and the stigma associated with it, we're going to speak with Dr. Hilary Seligman about how lack of adequate food can lead counterintuitively to obesity and what to do about it. Hilary Seligman is a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, with appointments in the departments of medicine and epidemiology and biostatistics. Dr. Seligman is an expert in food insecurity and its health implications across the life course. Her policy and advocacy expertise focus on federal nutrition programs, food banking, and the charitable food network, hunger policy, food affordability and access, and income-related drugs of food choice, among other things. She also serves as Senior Medical Advisor for Feeding America. The number of people judged to be obese continues to climb in the country, as does the rate of people with diabetes. What 
causes people with the least money to be some of the heaviest? And do federal food programs provide healthy food for people who need it? It is true that there are very stark disparities in obesity and particularly in diabetes rates across populations that have the least access to resources in the United States. Black households, Latino households, Native American households have some of the highest risk for obesity and diabetes. One of the reasons that is food insecurity itself. Food insecurity is much more common in these households, and this reflects decades of policies that have systematically excluded black and brown households from access to higher quality resources. And so the logical outcome of the the decades of policies that have limited access to healthy foods for black and brown people is that we have higher rates of obesity and diabetes. And so we do need to play a lot of catch up here. SNAP allows you to buy any food that you want with very few exceptions. Uh, So it does not tell people what to buy. However, we have a challenge that if you are living in a food insecure household, you want to get as many calories as you can for your limited food dollars. So the, the average SNAP benefit for someone in the U.S. is about $5 per person per day. Just to clarify, SNAP is a supplemental nutrition assistance program that succeeded food stamps. And $5 a day is what many people in the U.S. are now paying for a cup of coffee. If that was the only money you had to spend on food, and one of the challenges we have with our food system in the United States is that healthy food costs more. And it particularly costs more calorie for calorie. So the more that you put your limited dollars into oil, rice, pasta, butter, highly processed foods, the more calories you're going to be able to afford. And so that's the bind that many people in food insecure households are in. I have a very limited amount of money for food. I want to be able to get a sufficient number of calories. And the only way I can do that is by buying really unhealthy food. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in many cases, food insecurity is associated with obesity and the development of diabetes. There are some federal nutrition programs that focus only on access to healthy food. In general, what I think we need to be thinking as policies are how can we create a food system that allows healthy food to be more accessible to people who are food insecure rather than forcing food insecure people to only buy certain foods. So that's really the food desert issue that that lower income areas don't have access to healthy food. That's exactly right. And one of the things that we know about food deserts is that the fundamental problem is that there is not sufficient money in the neighborhood to support the provision of healthy foods. And really the best way to reduce food deserts is to push more money into the community for healthy foods. Because if we just push in a grocery store that stocks only fruits and vegetables, people in the community still won't have the money to purchase them. It is very clear that fruits and vegetables and lean meat are considered luxury food items for people in food insecure households. It is risk to purchase them. It is considered a special treat, highly desirable, but a special treat. And until we can make healthy food items cost no more than unhealthy food items, it's going to be very challenging to mitigate these disparities in dietary intake of unhealthy food. Are the health results different in states that provide a greater or lesser safety net? In general, the highest food insecurity rates in the United States are in the Southeast, and these are also the states with the highest rates of obesity and diabetes and other diet-sensitive chronic disease overall. We do know that state-level policies make a big impact on food insecurity rates, and but these are things, for example, like access to, to tax credits, how states tax people who are living in low-income households. And we also know that access to health insurance very much impacts food insecurity rates. And so states that expanded Medicaid did, in fact, see reductions in food insecurity rates. So I would say overall, state-level policies make an enormous difference, but the data is not so clear about which states are seeing an improvement because of those policies. Thank you, Hilary Seligman. 
We're going to get back to Lisa Nelson in a little while. Right now, we're going to turn to the psychological implications of body weight issues. We'll be speaking with Diane Barth. She's a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. She has a master's degree from Columbia University School of Social Work, an analytic certification from the Psychoanalytic Institute of the Postgraduate Center. She's widely published. One of her more recent articles in Psychology Today is, What is the Difference Between Guilt and Shame? It has relevance to our topic today people won't speak about eating disorders, for the record. So my first question is, in your practice dealing with patients and also teaching other therapists about the issue of eating disorders or body image disorders, is this the result of trauma or stigma or and stigma? You're asking a question that has a long answer <laughs> and a complex answer because, first of all, disordered eating difficulties are not always the same. And being overweight is not always an eating disorder. So let's start there for a minute, because this will partly answer your question about stigma and trauma. We live in a world, and it's no longer just our Western culture, it's a world that has very limited ideas of what a healthy body weight is. And we prioritize thinness in a way that actually promotes eating disorders that involve being too thin, so anorexia, or bulimia and bulimorexia, those are caused in part by the tremendous emphasis on thinness in the world we live in and the, the connection between thinness and what we think of as health and the connection of thinness with what we think of as intelligence. We connect all sorts of things to certain kinds of body images. We have to start with the idea that not everybody who is overweight, even according to what the BMI and the, what are the medical professionals, what they consider to be overweight, is not necessarily overweight. When you and I were growing up, there were some people who just were considered to have big bodies. And especially, for example, in the black community, where some people have bigger bodies and bigger bodies are more respected, there's a real conflict between the more Caucasian view of what a body is supposed to look like and the black view of what a body is supposed to look like. And that has created some difficulties for a lot of people, including that, again, not being overweight itself is not necessarily unhealthy. I even, I apologize for using the term overweight because it's an overweight according to certain very restrictive perspectives. And by the way, that is exactly what our Dr. Lisa Nelson, who we are also speaking about in this broadcast, has said. Yes. Okay, good. I'm very glad to hear that because not all uh, eating disorder specialists agree with that and not all doctors agree with that. But there's evidence. There's been more and more research to show that this is this really is what's going on. So there's a stigma, to go back to your question, there's a stigma about being heavier than the ideal image. And as soon as somebody acknowledges being of a larger body size, they are going to be in danger of being traumatized by how other people view them, by people seeing them as being weak, not having willpower, as being not as intelligent, because why would you let your body get like that? You probably grew up with this too. Long before people were diagnosing eating disorders, we had girls who were heavy set and who would be told by their grandmothers, oh, you have such a pretty face. If you would just lose some weight, you would be just beautiful. Having people say those things to you is traumatizing. Growing up with that kind of feedback and some cultures are much more overt about it. Some are more uh, like the Latinx culture is extremely overt about criticizing uh, women for being gorda, for being fat. And everybody will say it to a woman. So I have clients who have been humiliated on a plane or on a bus because they're bigger than the small seats 
And so they spread and people on either side of them get really nasty and get mean and hurt their feelings and shame them and they end up feeling uh, traumatized. So stigma is what society attaches to it and trauma is the reaction to the stigma. Exactly. Exactly. So it doesn't surprise me at all that people might, with good intentions, be willing to talk to you or feel like they're going to be willing to talk to you. And then on thinking about it, feel like why would they put themselves in a position of being shamed or being criticized or in ultimately being traumatized? That gets to the next question, and you've just written an article about that, and that is about shame and guilt and how they are interrelated. So can you talk about that in the context of eating disorders or what we call eating disorders? Exactly. So we all know the feeling of, oh, I ate too much. I'm so ashamed of myself because I did something that is bad and other people are going to be critical of. Or, oh, I feel so guilty because I had ice cream yesterday. And the difference is extremely subtle, but the difference is basically that if you do something that is against your own value system, then you feel critical of yourself internally and and you feel guilty. So guilt is about doing something that you believe is wrong. Shame is about doing something that somebody else is going to be critical of you for. And I work with people who feel both. If they don't, they're not so separate, but I work with people who feel both because they'll say, I snuck an ice cream yesterday, or I snuck a donut, or mm, I snuck a muffin, or something. They feel, is it's hard to think about this in terms of food, but they feel that it's morally wrong to have eaten the fattening food that they ate because they shouldn't because they don't deserve it. They're already too heavy for in their eyes and in the eyes of whatever world it is they're judging themselves by. So they feel guilty because they've done something they feel is wrong. But they also may very well feel shame. A lot of people feel it when they're eating in a restaurant and they feel like people are looking at them and saying, why should you be having dessert because you're so heavy and you really shouldn't have dessert? It's not made up. People are probably thinking that. There are people who are looking at them. But that is, so that's a combination of feeling guilt and shame. It, it is easy to understand how that happens and how people feel that way. As I read your writing uh, about the issue, the question popped into my mind. I think that when we talk about eating too much food or eating too little food, that it's a food problem. But in terms of what you deal with, do you think this is a problem with food or is this some other kind of problem that we're we're dealing with? The answer is yes. (laughs) It's like Mark Bittman said when you interviewed him, that food is, is primary. Food is so important. Food is, we have to have food nurture. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of how we survive. It it is about food. It is about how we eat. I have a colleague, Catherine Zerbe, who's written beautifully about working with clients with disordered eating. And one of the things she said to me the other day, I was talking to her about this, and she said, the problem is that while there are people who do not have enough food, in a lot of the world right now, we have too much food and we have too much food available. So One of the problems is making choices. And then there's also the psychological. We have commercials going on all the time about these, whatever uh, form of media you happen to be watching, there are ads for all kinds of foods, many of them really unhealthy foods, but that look delicious. I'm a vegetarian, but some of these burgers with cheese melted on them or chicken, fried chicken, look so good that they make you want to go out and have it, even though I don't eat that stuff. And that's what they're made for. They're made to entice you. So there are all kinds of messages from the world that tell us, oh, go eat or go treat yourself to this or this is really special. And at the same time, there are all kinds of messages from the world that say, oh, if you give in to that and then you gain weight, then you're a bad person or you have no willpower, whatever. So the whole idea of disordered eating is much more than about food, but it also is about food. 
It's about how we learn to eat. It's about then also that we learn from, again, from all sorts of messages in the world that food is a way of soothing ourselves. Food is special. You're listening to Living Well Into the Future. This is Julie B. Adler. We've been talking to psychologist and psychoanalyst Diane Barth. When we come back, we'll be hearing more from her. Welcome back to Living Well Into the Future. We're speaking with Diane Barth about whether food is the culprit in eating disorders. Years ago, Molly O'Neill, the New York Times food writer, at the time wrote this beautiful piece about the idea that human beings have used food forever as a way of being connected to each other. It's a way with how we celebrate, it's how we mourn, it's how we give to one another. It has all sorts of meanings. It would make sense that when there's psychological issues, the, the, the food gets tangled up in those psychological issues. It just makes sense because food has such complex emotional meaning for all of us. I just had a funny interchange with one of my brothers. We were talking about a cookbook that my, our mother had used since we were very little. And my mother and I had battles over food, I think, certainly for as long as I can remember. If I didn't drink all my milk, if I didn't eat the beans, if whatever. My brother said to me, Mom loved that book, that cookbook. She was such a terrible cook. I had never thought that maybe one of the reasons I didn't like to eat my mother's food was because it was because it was badly prepared or badly cooked. When we're talking to people, when therapists like me are talking to people, we don't often take that into account. But there's a very complex interaction that goes on, even with parents and their children and the whole eating process. So yeah, of course, difficulties with food has emotional, familial, childhood connections. It also has societal connections. It also has genetic connections. One of the things that we don't talk about nearly enough is that body size is genetic. You often have a whole family who's large, not because they have poor willpower, not because they have major psychological problems, but because those are the genes that they got. Now that our guests have clarified some of the issues relating to food, weight, and health, we're going to hear how they approach those issues in their practices and how those practices have changed over time. I heard in one of the people who wouldn't speak for the record that she was of a certain ethnicity. She was large. Her mother was large. All the women in her family were large, and she was fine. And you know what? She probably was. The one thing that I always recommend to clients is there's a system called Health at Any Size, which says basically what you're saying right now, that, that you can be healthy at any size. The one thing I do ask clients when we're talking about this is that they get checked out. And I do this with my very thin clients. I do it with clients who are binging and purging is that I want them to get checked out physically. Neither they nor I have the skill set to be able to say they're fine. But if they're fine, if they don't have any medical problems, then how they're eating may be the right way for them to eat. Also, I have my own system, and I learned this from one of the nutritionists who I have sent people to over the year. I encourage people, if they're going to eat the way they're eating, if they're going to be content with what their size is, can we find a way to make sure that they're also eating some of the ingredients they need to get into their bodies? This nutritionist I work with, she has people eat a, a slice of pizza with vegetables on it or a, a kale or spinach omelet for breakfast. In other words, she has them try to start to put some of the foods that they often may have left out of their diet into their diet. Rather than taking things out, we add something. And, and I've had a few people who have, with that system, have actually lost some weight. Some people who have a problem with their weight tend to eat more carbs just because that's what appeals to them. And if you put somebody like that on a diet, they start to feel deprived. If you have them add green things but don't take anything away, they actually start to eat a little less of some of the carbs, and, they're, and even if they don't, they're getting something healthy into their bodies. 
At one point, you mentioned that there had been a change in attitude over time over whether it was okay to be anorexic and whether there was more acceptance of that. And again, is that a food problem? Can people be anorexic and healthy? What people actually in our culture do not get is that it's actually, it's more dangerous physically to be anorexic than it is to be overweight. Because anorexics are in danger of damage to their kidneys, damage to their reproductive organs. We need fat in our bodies. And if somebody is anorexic over a period of time, they're in danger of heart disease. There are all sorts of things that are really potentially from being anorexic. Anorexic can kill. Uh, anorexia can kill. It, it's a dangerous illness. And one of the more significant dangers in our culture is that we focus on people who are overweight and see people who are thin to the point of anorexia as being strong, beautiful, healthy, but they're really not. They're really, they're in more trouble than many people who we call overweight. So to go back to your question, or, or another part of your question, when I started working with eating disorders, which was in 1981, we were seeing a very small group of young women, almost exclusively, who were binging and purging, starving themselves, or overeating to the point of some perceived danger. And if somebody went to college and and had these symptoms, the college got panicked about it. The guidance counselors were called in, the therapist was called in, the parents were called in. It, would be, it was seen as a really frightening disturbance. I used to go and speak to people at different colleges, or to counseling departments, and we talked. That was one of the things they worried about, was how do they deal with this? These days, they just consider it part of adolescence. It is so common on college campuses. Kids throw up in their dorm bathroom. Their people are super thin. The, the colleges do come down on somebody who's so thin that they're in danger. But otherwise, it's really often seen as just part of the adolescent experience. So it's extremely widespread these days. I think that's cultural. I think that's not psychological, and I think it's not it's not about food. Now, having said that, there are specific reasons that people have difficulties. I There was a young woman on a college campus who was anorexic because she was from another country. The college dorm cafeteria didn't serve any foods that she recognized or felt comfortable with, so she wasn't eating. So once we figured out that was going on, we figured out how to get her some of the foods she was comfortable with, she was eating again, and that was the end of that problem. But in general, the idea that thinness is preferable is a huge factor in all of these eating disorders. And of course, these days we see it in young men as well as young women. It's everywhere. How do you see this in an older population? There are two groups. So we often see people who are, are in a midlife period. And this goes back to your earlier questions. Many times it's somebody who had an eating disorder and which they got under control, which just disappeared over the course of their lifetime, and now it has reemerged, often in a time of midlife when things are changing, there are losses, children are moving out of the home, they've maybe gotten divorced, different things are going on, parents are getting older, and that's a time where you get the mix of there's a physiological piece for men and women, there's a change in the body, there's also for men and women concerns about feeling older and wanting to get control of their bodies. So there are psychological pieces, and then there's also that their bodies are changing, so they gain weight because of changes in their body, so there's a physiological piece. Then we also see it in the elderly who are often stop feeding themselves because they're lonely, because it's only them, there's nobody to cook for, there's nobody to eat with. And that's a different form of an eating disorder. It's a dangerous one. It's one that has to be watched for. It doesn't have the same dynamic meaning as it may have for some of the generations. But it does have to do with depression and loneliness and a change in... It doesn't have nearly as much with a desire to be thin as it does with a sense of not being able to take care of themselves. We've heard from Diane Barth about how food is linked to, but not necessarily the cause of body weight issues. Now we'll turn back to 
Dr. Lisa Nelson to hear more about her practice. Dr. Nelson, could you describe the group Healthy Eating, Healthy Living that you lead? What is its purpose and who participates? Healthy Eating, Healthy Living, what does that really mean? Well, that's actually a big question. We think we make assumptions about what it means, um, but the group is really to unpack that. So we talk about basic whole food nutrition. What does a healthy diet really mean? Does that mean you have to be vegan? Does it mean you have to be low carb? So we kind of go through all the fads and myths and what's true and what's not true. We talk about exercise. We talk about stress. We do meditation. We do chair yoga. So it's we really try to talk about the whole package, body, mind, and spirit. And when questions come up, what's true or not true, we do fact checking and we spend a lot of time on the on the emotional aspect because I think you colluded to this so if somebody comes to me and they've been struggling with their weight for a long time and their is in the 30s or 40s even if they have this metabolically healthy profile there's often still some suffering when people say well I still want to lose weight and so we look at that maybe they say they're not comfortable in their clothes or that they just want to feel lighter when they move or they're worried about their joints so it's not that it's not ever appropriate but how can we do it in a way that doesn't cause the suffering that so often goes along with dieting and self-judgment and weight and stress and going on it again and falling off it again. So is there another way? And do men and women both participate or is it <laughs> largely women? Yeah. We have some lovely, wonderful men who've been attending, which is really nice. But yes, the women are in the majority. We have a nice age range, some women in their 20s, all the way up to I think our oldest member is now 80. So it's a lovely group. We spoke with Daphne Belling, who had been in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, the medical director at Canyon Ranch. And she wrote a book about eating colorful foods, the phytochemical right. diet. And I wonder what you are suggesting in terms of diet to your patients. What's fun is that nature really has our health in mind. So I do love that eat a rainbow because it's fun and they're tasty and they provide different micronutrients. And so that's wonderful. I would say my favorite food writer is Michael Paul, who he's got this lovely little handbook called Food Rules. I can't remember up to 30 and some of them are really quite cute, but the basic three are eat food. Okay. And what he means by that is whole food, not fast food, not convenience food, but foods that really look like they did when they came from the plant or the earth or the animal. So eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Eat food, not too much. So a whole foods diet where half the plate is vegetables and the portion sizes are reasonable, it can be super simple. So it doesn't have to be vegetarian, it doesn't have to be vegan. Carbohydrates are okay in moderation, even a little sugar if you're doing okay. We can have our sweets. We don't have to be nuts. It just has to be balanced. So that's my favorite. It's thinking about that plate with half of it colorful vegetables, a quarter protein, either meat or eggs or beans or nuts, and then a whole grain or a starchy veg like a yam or a potato. That's good stuff. And then remembering the role of healthy fats. We can have our dairy. We can have our oils. Turns out they're not as bad for us as we thought 20 years ago. Is there any other recommendation that you would say to your patients in terms of walking out the door and staying healthy? <laughs> I would say for me, the most important aspect of healthy living is that if we're going to make any changes, they really should be sustainable because yo-yo dieting is actually quite harmful to the body. So I'm not a big fan of fad diets or extreme diets or rapid weight loss. If we feel like things are out of balance, we want to pick sensible, moderate choices that we're willing to live with forever. So it has to be pleasurable. And that's what's so nice about learning that fats are okay, that carbs are okay, <laughs> that when we balance the delicious foods with the healthy food and we're able to do that in moderation and move our body, that's usually enough to promote health. So it doesn't have to be hard and it doesn't have to be torture. And you would give this advice to your youngest and your eldest patients. I would, exactly. 
but you're also saying combine it with other things. I think it's hard to eat healthy sometimes, right, when we're unhappy. And and that was my experience during the pandemic. And there are many reasons for that. And like, it is true that comfort foods make us feel better. So making sure that we have community, that we're surrounded by people we love, making sure that if we can, that our job has meaning, so that we enjoy our work, and so that our families are safe, that we have play, that there's so many aspects to, to a healthy life. And I feel like when things are balanced in that way, it's easier to stick with our healthy habits. Thank you, Lisa Nelson, for your insights. And to conclude, let's hear what Diane Barth has to say about how we might like to see things in the future. We're beginning to see a shift by advertisers to show people of different weights and as exemplars. Do you think that will make a difference in changing the body perceptions or is it just too ingrained? I hope no, I hope so. It's wonderful the shifts that we're seeing. They're not things we saw in the past and it is wonderful. The problem is still that those images are airbrushed. We still get perfect pictures. Somebody can be a little heavier than the sort of traditional picture, but they've still got beautiful skin and they've got huge eyes. I I think that the more we look at people as whole beings, as not having to look a particular way, be a particular size, have a particular facial structure, have certain kinds of teeth, everything about our bodies, the more we can allow for a wide range of looks to, to be seen as healthy and attractive the easier it will be for people of all different sorts of weights and all different sorts of body sizes to feel comfortable with themselves and not feel stigmatized. And as they're not stigmatized, they'll not feel traumatized. By the way, just to go back to that story, if you're a person who uses food to comfort yourself and you feel humiliated on the airplane because you're too big to sit in the seat and people are giving you dirty looks, then you're going to eat more to soothe yourself, then you're going to feel worse about yourself because you just did what you shouldn't have done. Then you're going to feel shame. Then the trauma is going to go you know, further. It's a vicious cycle. So if we can start to break into that vicious cycle, if we can start to say people are fine at different ways, as long as they're healthy, that's not the sign of being healthy or smart or happy or content or good. Then the, both the stigma and the trauma will diminish. Thank you to our guests today, Diane Barth, Drs. Lisa Nelson, Stephanie Belling, and Hilary Seligman. Please let us know whether this program enhances your appreciation of generations other than yours. Tell us what you think about the issues we discuss. You can find more information about them on the Berkshire Ali website, berkshireali.org. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBR 89.7 FM Pittsfield, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can reach us at lwitf22 at gmail.com. That's lwitf22 at gmail.com. Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali and its Changing Aging Special Interest Group for their support, and to our team members, Fran Weinberg, Alan Kofstein, Dale Borman-Fink, Lucy Kennedy, and our intern, Ashley Delraditz. Our music is by Michael Koppenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR Berkshire Ali or the LWITF production team.